Welcome to another conversation on orthodoxy. There's no question about whether or not you're going to do some philosophy. The question is whether or not you're going to do it well. Do you have a, a particular way that you would like to be introduced? Uh, no, you, you can do it. I, I prefer, I'm, I'm more comfortable talking about the content stuff than I am talking about myself. Hi, podcast listeners. Today I'm talking with Dr. Rico Vitz. Dr. Vitz is an Orthodox Christian and an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University, where he specializes in early modern philosophy. His research focuses on questions about moral psychology and philosophy of religion in the works of Rene Descartes and David Hume. He's the editor of a book called Turning East, Contemporary Philosophers and the Ancient Christian Faith, a collection of essays by philosophers who have converted to the Eastern Orthodox faith. got your book here. This is quite an astounding volume. It's conversion story, perhaps philosophy. I'm not sure where exactly it fits. Yeah. I've never seen anything quite of this size in any sort of conversion story, nor anywhere near the quality of contributors that you found. Well, even before the first chapter, you start reading through the list of contributors. It blows you away. Mm -hmm. How in the world did you connect with this many Orthodox philosophers and get them to to do this. So let me say two things. One is that um, on the genre, I think I think you're right. There is this sort of genre of sort of confessions, and this is sort of you know Augustine has a sort of classic. When there are other sort of classic big works of confessions, but this is sort of collections of small essays, philosophical confessions. And there are actually a number of volumes like this. There was um, two that were by kind of collections of Roman Catholic and Protestant authors. One is called Philosophers Who Believe. Another is um, God and the Philosophers. And there was, within the last five or 10 years, a volume of atheists called Philosophers Without Gods. So there's there are a number of these volumes, which I think it's sort of interesting to know that uh, there's this kind of, there's this, a number of books in this sort of genre. So that's worth noting. Uh, so this is sort of an ortho, there, there were no, that I know of, no real, um, representation of Orthodox philosophers in those volumes, with the exception of Richard Swinburne, but he had, he wasn't Orthodox at the time, he was Anglican. But you had asked about, like, how did I get hooked up with these people? What happened was I had, I had an interest in Orthodoxy, and I had had a number of my questions answered by very helpful priests, but being an academic and a philosopher, there were certain kinds of questions that I wanted to ask and certain ways of answering those questions. And I, and I had to go sort of seeking out ways of getting what, what for me were satisfactory answers. And so I just emailed out of the blue uh, a couple of philosophers who I knew would convert it. One was Richard Swinburne and the other was Tris Engelhardt. And so I, I got sort of connected with some Orthodox, at least two, that way. Um, and then I met a couple others sort of through those connections. And then I asked, I was happy, it was very helpful for me to ask people about their own sort of journeys to Orthodoxy. Um, and one day I was asking um, Seraphim Foltz, uh, Bruce Foltz, uh, what he thought of the idea of doing a sort of orthodox version of God and the Philosophers. And he said that he liked the idea, and I asked him if he would contribute, and he said yes. And then I asked uh, David Bradshaw if he would contribute, and he said yes. And so I had a very small group of people, and then somehow I ended up getting, you know, through them I ended up getting connected to other people, uh, people that I didn't even know were orthodox, you know, who, who's pat, you know, people who um, weren't invisible to me as philosophers, but they were invisible to me as Orthodox Christians. And one of the things that's nice about the volume is that it it, um, it 
takes some people who are invisible in those ways uh, and makes them visible. Well, I don't know how this um, stacks up against the other books, um, the, the other two that you mentioned. To me, this, this seemed like a very large number of people, not to mention just uh, in such a defined niche. Is this unusual in, in the world of philosophy? Is there, is there something particular about orthodoxy that makes it uh, more attractive to philosophers, or, or is this more or less a mirage that this, that this book somehow has conjured up for me? <laughs> well, I think that people who are serious about, if they're serious about seeking truth and they're serious about intellectual history, I think those sort of people can be drawn, uh, tend to be drawn to orthodoxy. When you start sort of teasing out sort of the history of the ideas, the history of uh, the church, the history of you know, the canon of scripture, um, that sort of, I think, leads people back into a, at least an appreciation of, if not appreciation of orthodoxy, if not into the church itself. And I think philosophers, a number of them, tend to have those sort of mindsets of concern for truth and interest in intellectual history. But I don't think it's, you know, philosophy is something that's necessary for being an orthodox, or, you know, an orthodox Christian. I don't think it's, and obviously not every philosopher is an orthodox Christian. So I don't think that, you know, the philosophy sort of necessarily lends itself to um, orthodoxy. And, and among philosophers, I think that at least in many uh, professional positions, I think theists in general are a minority. And among the theists, orthodox uh, are a minority, at least in, in sort of the, in the U.S. I don't know. Obviously, it's going to be different in other countries, but in the U.S., at least that's the that's been my experience. Okay. You know, the main philosopher that is, I, I think, well known to average you know, public, uh, at least as far as, as a Christian, would probably be William Lane Craig. Um, he's, he's fairly well known. It seemed to me that the tack that was taken by the various contributors of this book wasn't always um, so much um, an apologetic uh, tack in, in the same sense that, that maybe you would get out of Craig or someone um, along those lines. It's not that that wasn't there, obviously. I mean, there's sure. definitely um, aspects of that. Um, but, but was that uh, more intentional on your part, or was that just kind of the way it fell out? No, it, I think more the latter. So I think that among, uh, I think William Lane Craig is known, particularly among, probably more widely known among Christians outside of the profession of philosophy. I think sort of inside of the profession of philosophy, people are probably more, philosophers are probably more familiar with um, you know, Richard, Richard Swin, uh, who are Christians, are more familiar with Richard Swinburne, uh, Alvin Planting, uh, names like this, Trish Englehart, names like that. It wasn't that we sort of set out not to do something sort of apologetically oriented. I think that it's just the way that these particular, this particular group of philosophers uh, sort of approaches the discipline. Um, and obviously there are, there are some who are sort of more apologetically oriented. I think Richard Swinburne is like that. Um, but it just happened to be a, the, the folks that I had come in contact with didn't happen to have the sort of uh, approach to doing philosophy or philosophy of religion in particular that William Lane Craig has. Yeah. Is that, do you feel like that is um, also indicative of, of maybe the, the target audience that you were shooting for or not? Well, you know, it's, it's probably a little bit indicative of that when we were, when we were getting the volume together, I was trying to, you know, encourage the contributors to make, make things accessible. One of the things I think that philosophers, they, they tend to get a bad rap because we tend to talk to ourselves in highly technical language uh, and and then not spend enough time uh, trying to make you know, the things we're doing uh, accessible to others. So I think that's a sort of general concern. 
I had, but particularly with this this volume, right? I think it's important for Christians in general, Orthodox Christians in particular, um, to be more familiar with not only their intellectual heritage, but what's going on now. There's a, there's really interesting philosophy going on that's that's relevant to Orthodoxy that's sort of done in an Orthodox mode, uh, and people should know about that. That was one of the things we wanted to do in the volume was help people outside of the profession know about that. Kind of introduce the names and the faces. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And kind of. Uh, help people not to be invisible, right, to, to one another or to, uh, you know, the people who are, you know, serious about the sort of life of the mind, Christians, Orthodox Christians in particular, who are serious about the life of the mind, but aren't you know, deeply invested in the profession of philosophy on a sort of day-to-day basis. So I, so you had mentioned William Lane Craig earlier. I think that um, people like William Lane Craig are working hard to do that sort of thing, right, trying to make philosophy more accessible to others. So people that are outside of philosophy, I, I suspect, will, will probably fall into a couple of different camps. Some will, will more or less just kind of, you know, ship to passing the night, um, will, will uh, lead their lives in a, in a, a non-philosophical uh, world, I suppose, and, and uh, be just fine. But then probably of, of the rest, you, I would suspect that you'd find uh, the people in two camps, one, um, one of which that, that might think that, um, that philosophy is somehow perhaps anti-Christian or, or mm-hmm. something that, that is either unuseful or, or perhaps even even dangerous. Now, obviously, you as a philosopher right. would, would probably take great umbrage of that and say, mm-hmm. no, 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 that's, that's not the case at all. So speaking to, I guess, to Orthodox Christians, how do you see philosophy connecting to Christianity? What's the relationship? Yeah, this is good. So let me, let me actually take the first part of the question. So I don't I don't think there are there is anybody who sort of operates outside of sort of the world of philosophy, right? So I think that philosophy, like a number of other disciplines, uh, say accounting or uh, dietetics or something, uh, everybody has to do these, right? So my, my father is a, uh, a businessman, right? so he has he has kind of special training in you know, accounting and other things in business. It's not, I don't have that training, but it's not as if I don't do any of that thing. Right? It's part of running, you know, helping run with my with a beautiful one, my wife, helping run our household, right? We have to do some accounting. My mother's a dietitian. I, I don't have that, that training, uh, but it's not as if I don't have to worry about how to eat well, how to, uh, you know, help my kids eat well. I, I think there's, uh, I think philosophy is, is like those disciplines in, in this way, right? Everybody, I think, ha- everybody will do philosophy. There's, there's no question to me that that's going to happen. And and here's why. So let me seg- use this to sort of segue to the second part of the question. So I think of you know, anybody, if I was talking to anybody, I think, you know, uh, whether or not you believe that God exists, it it's something that uh, seems like a question that should be answered, right? That's under the purview of philosophy. If, if you're thinking about that question, you're doing, at least in part, uh, you're doing some philosophy, right? The question of, well, uh, is there an afterlife? And if so, what is it like? That's a philosophical question, right? That's something that should be on people's radar, you know, I think in their life. It's something that will affect uh, the way you think about the way you think about living. Do you know, do people have free will? Are they morally responsible? Uh, what are answers to certain important ethical questions, right? Do people have views about politics and culture? I think people have views about all of those things. And all of those things are distinctively philosophical questions. So I think, and this is some of the, one of the things I tell my intro students, right, that there's no question about whether or not you're going to do some philosophy. The question is whether or not you're going to do it well, right? And so I think it's important to do it well, just like I think there's no question you're going to have to do some accounting. There's no question you're going to have to do some, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of work that a dietitian does with nutrition. Right? The question is whether or not you're going to do these things well.
looking back, thinking kind of historically, um, you know, Christians have had, I guess, an on again, off again uh, relationship with philosophy, and, and you know, and, and in some time periods in history, it's it's well received. It seemed to be, you know, a foundational part of education, and other times uh, vilified as this. You know, when you, when you look at kind of orthodoxy, should should we be more or less just promoting philosophy? Should should orthodoxy have its own flavor of it? How do we, how do we, what should our relationship be in general? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think, I think the, the, what it, sh what the relationship should be is what it has been when we look back at sort of the best of our history. So take some examples, right? So you have, I'll, let me try to start with two examples I think are sort of on the extreme, uh, on two different ends and then try to go for some examples which I think are in the middle. So you get a figure, say like Tertullian, and it looks like Tertullian sort of undervalues philosophy, right? And that's that's not the stance that the, the church took, uh, sort of the, tradition, the ancient church took. Uh, you look at Origen, especially later in his work, and he seems to overvalue, you know, what philosophy what what, uh, what philosophy has to offer. And and neither of those is the sort of orthodox approach was at its best, or I think should be the orthodox approach to philosophy. So when when um, what's best? Let me just give three examples of what I think is sort of the the best the, the best use and the way we should use philosophy so as it turns out um you know we're doing this interview on the um feast of saint justin martyr as it turns out so it's his feast data so one of the ways you can use philosophy as i think saint justin did you can use it as a um a kind of a way of uh, uh sort of apologetics and evangelization i think that that is one way you can do it right you can it's a way of uh it's a common language that uh, Orthodox Christians share with people who don't share the faith, right? We can talk, we, even if we can't talk about, you know, the nuances of, uh, uh, you know, biblical hermeneutics or something with someone who's not an Orthodox Christian, we can talk the language of philosophy. So I think that's one way uh, that philosophy can be used. Um, I think the way that uh, sort of the Cappadocians and others used it in trying to formulate uh, the doctrine of, say, the Trinity, right, is they, we sort of mine philosophy for uh, helpful distinctions or concepts and we use it to try to uh, Orthodox Christians use philosophy in that way to try to articulate the things that they know to be true, right? To try to put into language the things that they know to be true, especially when they're you know, sort of subtle and complex. Um, and a third way is, uh, is the way that I think um, St. Clement of Alexandria sort of emphasizes to the point where he says, um, I'm paraphrasing, something like philosophy is something that's, that's Christians use um, as they sort of uh, in, in the process of being perfected or sanctified, or um, the process of theosis, and if you look through like the the Philokalia, the, the uh, language that a lot of the the fathers are using to explain you know, how to live the Christian life, um, how to live the you know the the ascetic life, is the language of um, you know Platonists, the language of Stoics. And so although they're not Platonists uh, nor Stoics, they're using that language. Not just to define doctrines, the Cappadocians did, but to to articulate a way of Christian living and sort of the, the kind of therapies that ascetic labors uh, do in sort of helping us in the, on the road to sanctification. So I think those are there are sort of two extremes we want to avoid, and there are a number of uh, I think ways in the middle that I think Justin, the Cappadocian, Saint Clement, and others sort of exemplified. Yeah, I was thinking about some modern philosophy, and uh, and, and I use modern in a very kind of a loose sense. It, it, you can almost get the the sense that with the the wide variety of stuff out there, some of it uh, for particularly for non philosophers who have no training, you know, this this can be fairly heady stuff. 
Um, right. But it's also, I mean, it, it comes from a very different worldview um, right. than, than what we would say is the mind of the church. And so if, if you're giving a recommendation to you know, average Joe Orthodox Christian who says, okay, um, I want to do philosophy and I want to do it well, um, mm-hmm. should they just go out there and start reading things on their own? Do they, do they need help? Who's help? How do, yeah. how do they get going? This is, a, this is a great question. So one of the things I think that's un, unfortunate for philosophers is that we don't, you know, as yet have, have people who are really good. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we have people of the caliber of, say, like what Stephen Hawking does with science or, or what, um, uh, um, I, I forget, I'm blanking on their names now, uh, Francis Collins and there's another guy, at, um, Brown, who sort of, you know, explains, uh, you know, contemporary biology in ways that are that's accessible. We, I don't think we have figures that are of this caliber in, in terms of their training and their ability to make stuff accessible. Um, so I think that's a something that I hope that changes for the better as the discipline goes forward. But um, so if you're trying to get into it, unfortunately, there's no particularly easy entry point that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe there'll be a listener who's thinking, yes, there is. Uh, maybe that person could let me know. Um, but I think what's there there are a number of books that are prob that are uh that, that can be helpful i mean i think it's it's great to get into you know source texts if possible um so i, I think you know uh, there there are sort of helpful entry ways to you know start at the beginning right with plato or something some of plato's dialogues are pretty accessible for the apology uh, the credo um euthyphro right and these are sort of inter they're sort of interesting and um uh, asking interesting questions and in a sort of, I think, reasonably accessible way for source text. But I don't know. Yeah, I wish I had a better answer for this question, and I don't. I have, I have a better answer for you. You do? Good. I, I, I do. Um, you should listen to a new podcast by, uh, by Dr. Vitz. <laughs> well, there's, I do, one of the things I did hope, one of the things I do hope is that, um, that a volume like Turning East can be uh, a little bit like that, right? So it helps people get at least a flavor of what's going on in the profession, so I'm hoping that, that a volume like that can, can be an entry point. I think, and I think there are others. I mean, I, th- I have, um, you know, colleagues in the profession who I think write these sorts of books. I, I just don't know of any that I'd recommend off the top, not because they're not good, just because I'm not familiar with them, right? Um, not familiar with the works in particular. So I'm not confident giving certain kinds of recommendations. I'm, I'm serious in my recommendation. I, I think, uh, I think that, that would be a very interesting podcast. I would certainly listen to it. Um, I think a lot of people would find that interesting. It, Anyway, so don't think about it. I'm sure you have tons and tons of free time. Nothing but free time. <laughs> it's funny. I wish, I wish I was that guy. Sometimes I think we, we need the, – the, the discipline needs that guy, right? I think, yeah. And then I just think, I don't think I'm that guy. <laughs> Be the change you're looking for. Right, maybe. As an Orthodox Christian, how does philosophy play into, into their life, say, in, in worship or, or in their everyday interaction with God? Is it, is it informing their mind? Is it – uh, is it something deeper in the heart? How, how do you see uh, philosophy playing into, uh, I guess, the, maybe the spiritual life of, of the church or the individual? Yeah, that's great. Let me, instead of saying this is how it does it for everybody, let me say just a few of the things that, it, that, that uh, in what ways in which it's been helpful for me. And maybe people will go, yeah, me too, right? Or, or I would like that too. Um, so one of the ways it's been helpful for me was just wrestling with really difficult problems, right? So one is there there are some questions that I think are just challenging, uh, you know, about um, the existence or nature of God, to say the problem of evil or something like that. Um, you know, why does God allow suffering? And I think that, you know, 
uh, as it turns out, lots of philosophers have written a lot about this particular problem. You know, on both sides of the of the debate, the people thinking this is a reason. You know, that it's this is compelling evidence that you the, either God doesn't exist or you shouldn't worship God if, even if he did. Uh, and then people thinking, you know, these are there are ways of trying to understand why there is evil in the world. So I think intellectually there are, there are things that are helpful to wrestle, you know, when I, that I was wrestling with, I think philosophy has been helpful in um, helping me think through those problems. There are, there are uh, a set of sort of intellectual tools and conceptual tools that have helped me to sort of better understand, better understand my faith and even understand things like when Christians are articulating the creed, what, what's going on there, right? So for each of the articles of the creed, you know, What's at stake? Why are they picking? Why are they saying this particular thing? And why are they using this particular language? So I think philosophy is sort of helpful as a, as a sort of uh, diffusing sort of intellectual challenges. I think it's helpful in uh, bringing light to th- to uh, areas of the faith that seem confusing. Uh, maybe you don't feel like they're threats to the faith, but they're, at least they're confusing. So those are that's just with respect to the mind itself. And that that was particularly when I was younger. That was helpful. I mean, still is, but particularly when I was younger. One of the things I found one of the ways in which I found philosophy to be particularly helpful, and I'm finding it to be more and more helpful actually to me now, is in understanding not the life of the mind so so much as you know, the emotional life, uh, the passions, how to wrestle with those things, right? So, um, I mean, while I like and benefit a lot from reading the Desert Fathers or, or reading the Philoclea, it's been helpful for me to, for me to, you know, understand the history of philosophy, understand the sort of use the sort of tools that philosophy can give me to understand the life of the passions and how do I how do I wrestle with certain things right so why am I fasting right well, I'm fasting because uh, it helps me to train you know to, to train my desires to reform my desires well, why is it important for me to, to fast or reform desires of eating I'm not I'm not uh, at least from all appearances I'm not a glutton it's like in some sense that's true but there, there are certain ways in which I don't control even simple desires right I mean Lent, you know Lent rolls around Heck, Wednesday rolls around, right? And and, and I, I, you know, struggle even for you know the basic parts of the fast, right? But it's if I can get a control control over those desires, I can get a, I can get control over, uh, you know, I can develop the strength to get over other desires. So I think that um, philosophy is helpful not merely in sort of how we think about the world. I think that's one of the things that initially comes to mind for people about what philosophy is doing. But it's it's about how to live in the world and uh, to understand, you know, the kind of the kind of beings that we are and why um, the sort of early church fathers and mothers articulated certain kinds of, a certain kind of way of ascetic living. I think philosophy is helpful. It's been helpful for me in both of those ways. Is there a difference in the way that, that you as an Orthodox Christian answer the question, who is God, as opposed to a philosopher who's um, maybe a Christian but is, is Catholic or Protestant or, or some other? Does, does your Orthodoxy um, change that answer for you? Uh, yeah, this is great. Um, let me do something a, a little bit um, uh, annoyingly uh, philosophical and subtle, which is sort of change, tweak the question a little bit. Um, so I think that... Uh, I think one of the things that's happened since I've become an Orthodox Christian is I, I and this is different from when I was a, a, a Christian, but not Orthodox. I am, I, I resonate more with, um, I forget which of the Desert Fathers it was, but someone, uh, uh, someone had come to visit one of the Desert Fathers and uh, the Desert Father wouldn't uh, carry on a conversation with this visitor. Um, so the visitor was very dejected and 
um, he went out of the desert father's cell and the uh, he told the sort of apprentice or whoever was outside that the, this guy wouldn't talk to him, the father wouldn't talk to him. And so the, the younger monk came in and said, Father, why won't you talk to this guy? He, um, you know, he's come a long way. And, and the, the father said, he wants to talk to me about spiritual things, and I know nothing of that. But if he had talked to me about the passions of the soul, like, then we could have had a conversation. And I think in some ways I, that resonates with me now that I've become Orthodox. There's a, I'm, I'm a lot, I'm, I'm much more reluctant to try to uh, solve problems about, um, try, try to use philosophy to solve problems about the nature of God and go into the intricacies about the nature of God. Um, I'm much more like I'm much more likely to uh, realize that the those the, the ways to search for answers to those questions aren't by me sort of locking myself in my office and reading a lot of books and trying to write things. Um, the the better thing for me to do is to learn to pray. Um, so I think that's changed. I realize that there there are I think there are answers to these questions, but they're things that are known they're known by a different means, right? Not the means that I would I would have. Put a preeminence on right? in the same way that if I want to know my wife better, right? I don't I don't go and read a bunch of books about psychology and philosophy, right? I, I sit down with her and I have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, that that answer is uh, annoyingly practical and, and strikes me as as terribly orthodox, and I love it. it does does the uh, the same thing apply to questions of uh, you know, morality and and free will and things that that deal with the nature of man? No, I no there there I feel differently, right? So with questions about Free will or something. I think there is both kind of the kind of conceptual analysis that, come, that comes out of philosophy, the kind of empirical observation that comes out of the sciences, the sort of intersubject, uh, inter, uh, inter, interdisciplinary uh, sort of synergy that comes through there. So I, I think those are really important. Those are really important kinds of areas of, of research. And with with morality, I think it. You know, I think that's really. I think that's a really important. I think it's a really important area for philosophy. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that, that goes on in say the study of ethics that I disagree with, but I think that. No, that's not a, that's not a place where um, we should be silent. That's a place where we should uh, uh, seek uh, better understanding. In so far as we're able, and we should bring all of our tools. Right? It's not enough, you know, just to sit down and say, "I, I know, I know what the Bible says on X, Y, and Z." I think, right? But uh, sometimes our problem our problems aren't so clearly, you know, uh, you know, a matter of X, Y, or Z, right? Or they're they're um, there's some version of those problems, but they're, they have these new contemporary nuances that make finding answers harder. And I think it's really important to think through those and, and not just think through like what's what's the right thing to do, but for any given moral question. But how, how do we once we know what the right thing to do, how do we engage culture in a way that is is helpful? I think, I think that's those are important ways in which philosophy are important areas in which philosophy can be helpful. So if we're engaging with the culture, how, say, say we are talking with uh, a non-Christian at this point, what, what sort of tools does philosophy give us um, in that sort of, of conversation? How do we use philosophy um, maybe to introduce people to God? Yeah, great. No, that's great. I, I think, so here's a, an analogy I use with, um, with some of my uh, students. I ask them, um, so I teach, at a, right, I teach at a private Christian uh, college, and so I, I ask students, my interest students, so... If you were going to go um, into the mission field, what would uh, what are some of the things that you'd do? And inevitably, they, they say they say they say things like um, learn a little bit about the culture and uh, learn the language. And I think exactly. Um, and as it turns out, uh, this is this is uh, important for just learning about you know how to live in the world right that you live in without it traveling overseas. Right? People, not everybody speaks the language of 
of the Bible or something, right? So just by quoting some passages from Scripture, that's, that might not help anybody. That might seem, be like you know, speaking a foreign language to them. So what philosophy does is give us a kind of common language, and in some ways it's kind of a, a common heritage, right? I mean, if we if we live in the United States, chances are we're influenced by uh, the thought, you know, our culture has been influenced by the thought of a certain set of philosophers. So um, becoming familiar with our intellectual heritage and, and learning the la a language that people speak can be helpful, right? So we can talk about, um, we, we can at least try right, to talk about uh, right and wrong, virtue and vice in the language of philosophy, even if we don't share, you know, if I'm in a conversation with somebody, even if I don't share the language of, of scripture, right, I can try to point out, okay, well, here's Here's uh, your view on a, on a topic like topic of abortion or something, uh, embryonic stem cell research, human cloning, a bunch of uh, moral problems that uh, at, at their root have a similar issue. And we can try to you know tease out, okay, so if your view is right, then it looks like, or here are the implications of your view. That's, that seems problematic to me, right? So I think that a lot some of the things going on in our culture right now in the, uh, in the abortion debate, I, I think are, are the are, are the 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 implications of a certain view. So there was an article that came out. Um, I forget the journal now, but it was uh, an article called "Afterbirth Abortion," and it was basically about um, certain kinds of infanticide. Under what conditions would infanticide be morally permissible? This was the news within the last year or two, and people were, uh, you know, uh, this caused some buzz online. But this is just this is just a version of an argument that was published, uh, that's been published by previous philosophers, Michael Tooley and Peter Singer, you know, decades ago. So there's there's a way in which, you know, there are some views. They, they worked their way from just academic journal discussion to uh, a more publicly accessible uh, journal. I forget what the journal was, if it was a legal journal or a medical journal. And then you see, and I think people sometimes think, well, that's just ivory tower stuff. And I, no, no, the, the stuff that's going on now with... Um, uh, Kermit Gosnell and stuff, but that's that's just the those are just the that's the that's the application of a certain set of principles, right? That if you think that if you think that abortion is morally permissible through a certain part of of a pregnancy, you know, coming out of the um, the vaginal canal and uh, you know taking a breath doesn't change the nature of that being all that much. So I, I think that this is this is a way we can have a discussion, right? We can talk we can talk about here are things we just share about you know uh, em embryology. Anatomy and physiology. Here are some. Here are principles, you know, philosophical principles that certain people endorse to endorse the the view that moral that abortions are morally permissible. Even late term abortions are morally permissible. Well, those uh, those views have consequences for infanticide. And I think there's ways in which no, knowing philosophy and knowing uh, how to think through these problems it can really be a benefit for people, right? Rather than merely quoting scripture or merely being being involved in cultural protests, although I think those are important things to do, being able to speak the language can be, that other people speak is, can be very helpful. If, if there was something that you, you wish people knew about philosophy, what would that be? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it would be uh, one of the things I mentioned earlier, which was that there's, there's no doubt that you will do philosophy in your life, right? If you if you have any if you have a view about whether or not God exists, whether or not there's an afterlife, whether or not people have free will, whether or not people are morally responsible, right? Uh, certain ethical views, uh, issues, uh, certain political views. You, you're doing philosophy, right? All all of those things are questions that sort of fall under the purview of philosophy. 
There are things you, you already do. So there's no question you're going to be doing philosophy. The question is whether or not you're going to do it well. Right? And uh, so you, you should take that seriously. So that's, like a, so that's one thing. So I'm reiterating something I'd mentioned earlier. I guess the other thing I wish people would think a bit about is um, I think there are Orthodox Christians in general, Orthodox Christians in particular, who have too negative a view of philosophy, right? They sort of appeal to Colossians or something, right? You know, don't be taken captive by you know hollow and deceptive philosophy. I think that's exactly right. But um, not all philosophy is hollow and deceptive, and not every engagement with it, not, not every way in which you engage philosophy is to be taken captive by it. So um, you're you're going to do it, right? So you should have a more positive, uh, more positive view, right? Certainly, don't be taken captive by the hollow and deceptive stuff, but you're going to have to engage it, and you're going to have to engage it in a constructive way. Um, so I wish Christians would have that view. I sometimes wish that, I guess, Western Christians and and uh, and uh, non-Christians, atheists in particular, would have a a more um, sober and or uh, humble view about just how effective our powers of reasoning are going to be on their own. I think you know we should undervalue or overvalue philosophy. But we're gonna we're gonna have to do it, and we should. Uh, do it as as well as we're able uh, while being you know, cognizant of our own limitations. So there's three things that I wish people would know. You've corralled 15 other Orthodox, uh, you know, philosophers. You've you've talked, I assume, you know, talked to them about their conversions, read through their stories. You've you've kind of lived in their heads for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Did you did you learn anything about the process of conversion? Um, in, in the writing of this book, anything that, that came out of that, that that perhaps you didn't know before or, or some new thoughts? Yeah, I guess the way in which I learned, I did learn a lot. Um, and I guess the way in which I learned was a, you know, a kind of gestalt shift happened. Right? It wasn't as if things were set before my eyes that hadn't been set there before, but somehow I could see things that I couldn't see before. I don't remember these uh, they used to have these magic eye pictures or sort of these pixelated pictures where you could just st stare at them and they just look like a bunch of pixelated colors. But if you if you look at them the right way, you can sort of see a hidden 3D image, right? And I think I think in reading over these essays, first of all, I was just really I was just really um, humbled that people would be willing to do it because it it, it um, you know you have to talk about yourself and a lot of times people don't want to do that. Um, and there and people were um, I was very sort of uh, honored and humbled that they were willing to do it in a way that was um, transparent, right? So uh, certain people talked about um, struggles they had, serious struggles they had in their lives. And so I think what it what happened for me in reading it was just to realize that uh, there are there are a lot of ways in which just the basic things the, in my own life, so the basic things I do will have really profound uh, impacts on people in, in ways that I don't know both positively and unfortunately negatively right so that was that was one thing about uh, thinking thinking about the process of conversion and that it it just it just takes time it, you know it um people have different stories right and they're they're not they're not uh they're not projects you don't sort of you know, sort of work them through uh, it's we're not we're not uh, we're not sale you know in, in in sharing you know our lives sharing about our lives in christ we're not we're not selling anything. We're not. Um, we're not trying to close a sale, right? We're just trying to live our lives the best we can and uh, hopefully be windows of God's grace. So I think what what I learned was it was the kind of learning that happens in sort of deeper in the heart than merely in the mind, right? I, I was. I think that I was humbled uh, and uh, both by the 
contributions themselves and the thing I was things I was able to to learn from them. And, there, and there's a just a way of I, I hope I hope becoming sort of more compassionate, right? More compassionate about people and their journeys, right? These things, you know, they just they take time. Given that your book is all about conversion stories, I wanted to get a taste of yours. You know, when you started off your story in the book, you're like, I don't, you know, I don't like to talk about myself. But here you are. You wrote the book, so you did it to yourself. Um, so, do, do you mind? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be like an excruciating detail, but uh, would you mind kind of walking through a little bit? I actually didn't want to write, and I wasn't actually going to write. But I, when I got some of the people on board, uh, a couple of my brothers sort of had the gave me the view. That, Hey, look! If we're going in to do this, you have to go in to do this. So, so, okay. So I really, I tried to avoid it as long as I possibly could. So, so, so I guess the, the sort of skeleton of the story is: I was my father's side of the family is Roman Catholic, and my mother's side of the family is Episcopalian. So I, so I had this sort of Roman Catholic and Protestant, you know, background in my own uh, family. My mother became a Roman Catholic when she married my father, but I, I sort of moved in this world of. Um, being raised a Roman Catholic, but with sort of connections to, you know, t pretty tight connections to Protestants. In my formative years, my all my closest friends, all my closest friends were Protestants, and they still are. So I, I had that as a background, but it, and that was really beneficial. Although it also, it also made left for a certain amount of tension, right? As it turns out that uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants have some differences of opinions on things. So I, I lived it with a certain amount of tension, and I was. I was okay with that, but there was all there was always a kind of tension about certain questions about doctrine and religious practice. And at some point, my wife and I uh, thought, you know, we, we were members of the Roman Catholic Church. We thought, you know, um, we, we need to look elsewhere. Maybe, maybe if if for no other reason than just to to realize we're in the right place, right? So we um, we began looking elsewhere. Um, we attended. Uh, Protestant churches for a while, Lutheran church and a, a Baptist church for a while. Um, and in grad school, this is speaking about ways, just small ways in which you live your life and you affect others. In grad school, I had a, um, a colleague who became Orthodox, which struck me as the weirdest thing in the world because he was, I think he was a Southern Baptist from Missouri. And and I just thought, what are you, what are you doing? You're not Greek and you're not Russian. I mean, and growing up Roman Catholic, I thought of orthodoxy as a kind of bastardized form of Roman Catholicism for Greeks and Russians. So I had this, I had no sort of conception of what it was like. But just watching someone you know, who had made this move, I thought Is that that's an option that could be on the table. So I tried to look into I tried to look into orthodoxy, and it was interesting, you know, to look into church history and and see things where I thought. Actually, when there when there are points of difference between, say, Roman Catholics or Protestants on the one hand and Orthodox on the other, I thought I started thinking, well, I think the Orthodox are right on this issue, right, sort of papal jurisdiction or something. And so then we we looked into, uh, you know, we, we decided we'll go to a church, an Orthodox church, and we weren't going to seek out the, you know, the one with the coolest, you know, iconostasis or the most beautiful choir. We just decided we want if we were going to go to one, we want to be members of a community. So we picked the one that was closest to our house. And it happened to be a church of largely, largely of converts. And so the priests and the people there, when we would, uh, when we went, first of all, they were welcoming, not in the sort of creepy, trying to make you an Orthodox Christian by pushing you in kind of way, but just 
really sort of opening their hearts and being hospitable. Um, and then when we had questions, the, the, the priests were just remarkably good and patient. I, I think back of some of the questions I asked now and just think, wow, my gosh, <laughs> the priests were so remarkably patient with, with my misunderstandings of orthodoxy. So it, it sort of went that way. We had, a, we, we had a background. We were married in the Roman Catholic Church, had some struggles, started to look elsewhere. And then we just, you know, orthodoxy came on the map as an option and we, we happened to go. Um, and then we were sort of off and running um, once we got in the doors and, and uh, you know, started really learning. I mean, in some ways it felt like really learning how to pray for the first time. I and mean, that's not exactly true, but uh, there's, there's some kind of qualitative way in which that is kind of true. Yeah. In your life, you know, the, the order, uh, which I understand at least, you, know, you became a philosopher first and then became orthodox. Um, right. Do you, do you think, uh, this, this is probably an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, if you had become Orthodox first, would you still be a philosopher? That's an interesting question. Yeah, it's interesting. That's great. So let me say something about, about uh, the significance for me of be, being a philosopher first. So, because uh, I think I'm, I'm probably, uh, I might be a, uh, in, a, in a group of one who's had this experience. But for me, uh, I did work... My graduate work was on sort of the early modern periods, this is 17th and 18th century philosophy. And in that period, I was interested in Descartes and Hume. And it was really reading Hume, who's a sort of a committed um, atheist, that, that in some ways sort of led me to orthodoxy, right? It was, it was reading Hume and thinking about his conception of the moral life, the role of sort of what he calls sympathy, we might, we might think of as compassion or empathy, um, sort of the nature of uh, virtue. And his sort of looking, you know, having an eye back towards the ancient period um, that was really helpful for me, really, really helpful for me in thinking about uh, the life of virtue and, uh, you know, the, the wrestling, wrestling with the passion. So for me, being a philosopher was um, it was pivotal. It was, it was pivotal in, in, for me in becoming orthodox. Um, now, had I become orthodox first, would I be a philosopher? My my guess is no. Um, I Here's the reason why. I... It's not. I think my mind just works in a certain way that I, I like to ask these sorts of questions, and I and I blame my father for that because <laughs> uh, I think he has, even though he's a businessman, I think he has a really uh, philosophical mind. Um, so I, I ask these questions, but my guess is that if I had become Orthodox first, I think there's an ethos among many Orthodox that sort of discount the significance of philosophy. So my guess is I, I may have been interested in uh, theology. Or something. I was. I mean, I had. Before I got into philosophy, I had been interested in, in, in theology. In fact, I was um, the way I met uh, the beautiful one, my wife Rose, um, was I was uh, I was very seriously thinking about becoming a uh, a Roman Catholic priest. And you know, circumstances, one circumstance led to another. I ended up meeting her during that during that process. So I, my guess is, if it, had I been Orthodox first, I wouldn't have become a philosopher. I probably would have been interested in some related field, or maybe. Uh, theology or patristics or something, but my guess, and I, I think that's sort of a cultural thing. And I'm not certain. Uh, in some ways, I think that's good among among the Orthodox, we Orthodox. But in some ways, I think it's it's not as good, right? That that we, I think we should be more um, more seriously engaged with philosophy, not merely as sort of the history idea of ideas or um, you know uh, as it relates to the you know theology of the patristic period, but just philosophy as such. It's okay. I mean, we have people who are interested in science as such. We have people who are interested in business as such. We should have more, more Orthodox Christians, I think, who are interested in philosophy as such. How would you say that Orthodoxy has made a difference uh, in your life? Mm -hmm. 
That's a great question. Um, I think that the the way it's made a great difference is it's it's helped me better to understand the goal the goal of human life. Right, uh, the goal of human life is to is not just to sort of know God in some sort of intellectual sense. It's to become a partaker of the divine nature. So it's helped me to really rethink of uh, the goal of human life as as theosis or union with God. And so it's got me to focus on uh, different things. Right? I, realize, I, I think I realize now that some of my motive for going into philosophy and um, some of uh, you know, the energy I spent was energy spent, energy spent in trying to hide the things that ail me, right? It, it, the way that <clears throat> the way that an alcoholic can be in denial about uh, his or her addiction, right? Uh, or a drug addict, or a, a gambling addict. Um, I think there are ways in which, which um, I would spend time into, you know, wrestling with these intellectual puzzles. Um, and really, what I needed to do was uh, spend time, uh, in light of my understanding, you know, in light of what the goal of life is, spend time wrestling with the passions, trying to trying to remove vices and cultivate virtues and do in doing that by by um, uh, engaging in certain kinds of you know uh, I know it's a, a naughty word for some but engaging in certain kind of rituals right there there are there are um, you know I get I get up every morning to to go exercise right to help uh, keep my body healthy so I can live long and, and uh, play with my kids and and I there there are there are, just as I have rituals for keeping my physical health, there are there are rituals for my spiritual well-being, right? That's what that's what the cycle of prayers is. That's what that's what the liturgical cycle is. Um, and so, in coming to orthodoxy, it's it's just it's just help me re- really understand the goal of living. Why you know the church has all these things, all these things in place, you know, that are are there for my salvation. It helps me it's helped me to understand not only. Why they're there, but what what they're doing? And I'm still learning a lot. I mean, all the time I feel, but but it's it's really helped. It's really been revolution. I can't I can't really say enough, right? When uh, when sometimes I think people are wrestling with things, I just think, wow, uh, I wish I wish I could take off this pair of glasses I have, and that you could see the world in a slightly different way, because there's um, there are things that would be very beneficial to you, right? There's the life of the church can be very beneficial. Yeah. Thank you. That was that was an excellent answer, um, excellent conversation. I, I really appreciated all of your answers. Um, if somebody's uh, interested in finding out more about uh, turning east, what what's the best way to, to get information about that? Uh, so it's it's available. If, if they're just looking, I don't certain. Let me ask what you're at. Let me check and see what you're asking here. So, if if it's just how to purchase the book, right? It's available on Amazon or at Saint Vladimir Seminary Press website. So just access to the book there. If they're interested in, in the uh, the ideas that are present in the book, I mean, a number of these folks who have contributed, right, they, they, they mentioned, so they might mention something in passing that sound that, that sounds like, well, that sounds really interesting. Right? The, I mean, these guys have published, you know, lots and lots of very interesting uh, pieces. So, you know, kind of getting into their works, right, just going to their websites, you know, Googling uh, these various folks. And I think that's a, they, they can do that. And, and if they, they have other questions, they're welcome to email me. I, I did it to somebody else, and they, they were nice enough to answer my my email. <laughs> <laughs> Turnabout is fair play. Exactly right. Exactly. Right. I got to pay it forward. Do you have a yeah? Do you have a do you have a website for yourself? Do you blog? Do you have anything else that people might uh, be able to contact you uh, by by or with? Yeah. So I have. So if they go to uh, Azusa Pacific University, the, the department website, I have a link there to my personal website. There's information there about uh, stuff I'm up to and how to get in touch with me if they want to look at that. 
thanks for for taking your time. I really appreciate you um, you know taking a, an hour or so out of your your night. Yeah, it's been wonderful, Mark. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Vitz. And it unfortunately took a very long time for me to get this podcast together. And my apologies to Dr. Vitz for the long delay. I, I know that if uh, you listen to this podcast, you realize there are a lot of delays between episodes. It's not something that I do as a full-time job. It's a labor of love that I do on the side. And unfortunately, life intervenes. Um, and life really intervened between this interview and the, um, the, and the podcast episode getting produced. Uh, I'm glad this finally made it out the door. I apologize for the delays, but it seems that that's just the way this podcast is going to go. Um, it's just going to take a little while for me to do each episode, but I enjoy each interview and, uh, and I hope you guys are getting something out of it uh, as well as, as I talk to people who are passionate about orthodoxy and I'm learning about orthodoxy. Hopefully you're learning about orthodoxy and finding out uh, about the, the, the many resources that are available to people to learn uh, and, and find out what's going on out there in orthodoxy. If you like this podcast, please tell your family, tell your friends, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, orthodox. Tell them about this podcast. Let them know what we're doing, um, that they can uh, listen along and um, ask questions, um, submit possibilities for future interviews. I'd appreciate all that. Any feedback uh, is is great. And uh, the more people on this, uh, the merrier. So let them know. Um, they can get to the, the podcast directly at the podcast website, which is conversationsonorthodoxy.com. Uh, they can get to my personal blog on bradshaw.cc. And uh, it's also on Stitcher. So if you happen to use Stitcher app, uh, vote it up there so other people can see it and uh, you can get it on iTunes and, and all that. The music is from Chad Crouch, Chris Zabriskie, Circus Marcus Dexter Britton, Felipe Saro, Francesco Laterra, Peter Gresser, and Theoz Itch. And you can get all of their music at the excellent website, Free Music Archive. .org. Thank you for listening to another conversation on orthodoxy.